Hello, it's Richard Herring here. Welcome to my podcast feed, powered by ACAS Plus. And my stand-up tour is about to begin. Can I have my ball back? First stand-up tour in six years. Many of you just know me from the podcast. Don't know, I've done 14 or 15 stand-up tours in my own right. I'm a brilliant stand-up comedian. And can I have my ball back? I think it's my best show ever. That's what the audiences are saying. It's about testicular cancer, but it's funny because testicles are funny, even though cancer isn't. Uh, I'm really pleased with it. I'd love you to come and see it. Bring your friends. Some of the shows selling really well. Some of them selling really badly. It's a traditional Richard Herring tour. But here's where I'm going to be. 2nd of May, Thursday at the Luton Hat Factory. It's a small venue, but there are still tickets left. 3rd of May, I'm at the Berry Hedge End, which is near Southampton. That's looking more full, but still some availability. 8th of May, I'm at the Leicester Square Theatre. There's about 10 tickets left for that one, though I am back at the Leicester Square Theatre in June. And then I'm at St Albans on the 9th, Gloucester on the 10th. Chorley Little Theatre on the 11th, that's sold out, but you can join the waiting list. And then the 12th of May, I'm at Glasgow, afternoon show sold out. Evening show, extra show, put on, still with tickets. And then there's lots more. Go to richardherring.com slash ballback slash tour or richardherring.com slash gigs. And now enjoy whatever podcast I've given you. It's free. It's all for you. If you want to pay me back, buy a book, come and see a show. That's all I've got to say to you. Love you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello, welcome to another Alice Book Club. I'm very excited to be joined by the author, David J. Cohen who I know as the stand-up comedian Dave Cohen. I don't know if they're the same people. He's written a brilliant book called Stand-Up Barry Goldman, and he's written a second book to follow that up, which we'll also talk about, but Stand-Up Barry Goldman is the one I've read. Hello, Dave. It's lovely to see you again. Hi, Richard. Nice to see you. Yeah, lovely After to see you. all this time. It's been a little while since I've seen yeah. you, but we've known each other for a very long time. Um mm. So for people who might not be aware of you, I and mean, you're very well known in comedy circles, Dave, but um, yeah, people almost certainly have laughed at one of your jokes, even if they don't realise that, I think is, is fair to say. Tell us a little bit about just who you are, first of all, and what you've done. That's very kind. Thank you, Richard. Yes, I, I uh, began performing stand-up comedy in the 1980s uh, and did that for about 10 years. And then I uh, moved seamlessly into the world of uh, comedy writing, uh, writing for TV shows, Have I Got News For You and Spitting Image, those kind of things. And then more recently, I've been writing, I've been more known, I've been writing the, the uh, songs for Horrible Histories, the uh, kids TV show. And also working on uh, TV sitcoms, audience sitcoms like uh, Not Going Out and uh, My Family and, and various things like that. And so that's really um, what, I, what, what I'm probably but slightly outside of this miniature comedy circle is where people <laughs> might know of me. <laughs> yes, well, I'm sure that, you know, and uh, I mean, even if it was just horrible histories, writing the songs for horrible histories, that would be an amazing achievement because those are absolutely fantastic. But yeah, what a... What a what a career you've had already. And it's very, it's interesting to have moved into writing novels. The, the Senate Barry Goldman is, um, I mean, it's, it feels like it's uh, autobiography, Dave, but it, how much is it autobiography and how much is it fictionalised? 
Yeah, I mean, it started off very much, but I, I wanted to uh, do a, I wanted to write a novel. And in fact, I had the idea for this novel in uh, 1981. So uh, it, it only took me 40 years to actually get to it. But I think what, what happened in the process of the sort of the three years or so that I was kind of getting it together was that I wanted to, uh, I'd sort of written a vaguely memoirish type book before. Uh, and I just thought, these stories are probably better told in fiction, really. So um, I took what were the the true facts, which were that I did uh, when I was a student in the late 70s, I I went to the Edinburgh Festival on a couple of occasions. And on one such occasion, um, I got to know and became quite friendly with um, the the also student at that time, uh, Rick Mayle. And... um, got to see his show with Aid Edmondson in uh, Edinburgh 1979, which was a, a play called Death on the Toilet, uh, um, which was uh, alluded, of course, to the uh, fairly recent uh, death at that time of Elvis Presley. Um, but it was just, um, it, it was really the kind of, I, I think it was just fair to say it was a turning point in my life, really. I mean, seeing that show just, I, I couldn't believe that it was possible to do comedy like that. Like like Rick and Aid, I'd grown up uh, and probably a little bit like you, we're a bit older than you, but yes. you know, we grew up with the whole nineteen seventies world of comedy. The uh, you know the, the the guys with the frilly shirts and the bow ties on the comedians show doing jokes about. Uh, mother-in-laws and um, the Pakistani bloke who ran the, the the corner shop, and that stuff just didn't really it didn't speak to us really, but we didn't quite know what would speak to us. And then punk came along in the nineteen seventies, and that and that blew everything away on the music front. But also, it was just really funny. Punk was just funny, and I think yeah. that's where that's where it came from. And just seeing. Rick and A doing death on the toilet in some, uh, and it was an old, it was an old porn cinema in uh, right. in Edinburgh. I don't know if you remember it. It was sort of on uh, Nicholson Street. Right, so um, I, I can't remember <laughs> what it was called, but but it was uh, uh, the the JC, I think, or something like that. And right. um, you know, and so from that point, really, I just thought um, this this is what I want to do. Yeah. And so the book kind of uh, build builds around that relationship, really. Yeah, well, you know, as a comedian uh, who went to Edinburgh as a, a virgin with no idea about what it was like, uh, how to communicate with women, uh, it was all gave me a bit of PTSD, this book, even though mine was sort of te- eight or nine years <laughs> after this. Uh, but it's a really interesting document of, you know, historical document as well as a, it's a very funny and entertaining book, as you'd expect. But I think to, oh, thank you. to, um, to get that history of edinburgh at that time and that as you say it's such an exciting time because there's the punk element i mean you being friends with and barry being friends with the equivalent of uh rick mail is you know just just an astonishing insight into what was going to be obviously the next big thing and for my generation the absolute big thing that sort of changed our lives in in comedy terms as well as a fan as a slightly younger fan um, so yeah, it is. I think it's well worth reading for that. Get the tempting tatty gets a couple of mentions, which I'm very pleased about, <laughs> which I talk about a lot. Uh, but I think it's you know it's nicely it's nicely balanced because it's as much about you know you you grew up in Yorkshire and Leeds and um, it's as much about your home life and your family and and your various attempts to have a, uh, a relationship with a with a couple of girls and some some successfully and some not. And going to and going to university, so it, it's as much about that as it is about comedy, which I think makes it. Uh, I hope I think more broadly interesting as well than it might be if it was just here's here's a his, here's a dry history of what happened in 1979 at the Edinburgh Fringe. Yeah, I think um, the, the the most fictional parts really are the uh, the, the the comic romance bits. They yeah. they are those relationships are sort of made up, but there, there's a there's a kind of emotional truth, I would yeah. say, at the heart <laughs> of these relationships, and uh, you know what it's what it is like to be uh, a teenager navigating this uh, new world of uh, the, uh, of um, feminism, and and so it does kind of tie in with uh, the alternative comedy thing, because when when alternative 
comedy started. I mean, it, it came out of this. Um, I mean, the, the punk thing was one aspect, but there was also this um, very kind of earnest left wing fringe theatre that had developed in the in the mid seventies. That was very um, very political. It, it was it was very much challenging uh, the, the sexism and uh, misogyny, um, but. In those days, this was this was a very kind of small scene, almost as like a sort of almost like a cranky kind of idea that oh, what women women uh, having you know kind of kind of the right to perform and do all these things. It was sort of seemed like a very peculiar uh, yeah. thing. Uh, uh, but uh, so you had this kind of um, and, and uh, uh, I think um, the person I think who personified that was uh, probably most a guy called Andy de la Tour, uh, who's the brother of the of uh, Francis de la Tour, of course, the, the great uh, actress, um, Rising Damp, and all those other. Uh, and I mean, that's what I remember her for because yeah. that's the comedy. But she's probably some sort of fantastic Shakespearean performer. Who, but what, you don't remember her Persephone or whatever? No, I just remember her as Miss Jones in uh, Rising Damp. Miss Jones. Um, and um, but Andy was very, you know, very committed to that sort of left wing side of things. And then you had this sort of movement in the early seventies in uh, uh, in Europe, really a French thing. That this is the situationist, this this kind of abs- these absurd uh, clown type people who who went out challenging the norms of society. They went out and did pranks in the open air, and and um, uh, and and from that came a guy that. You know, you and I both know, of course, uh, to- Tony Allen, um, who who actually was the first person to coin the phrase, I think, alternative comedy. And um, his whole approach was challenge and, and have attitude when you go on stage. Um, so on their own, those two guys were, were developing something. And then along comes Alexi Sale, who is just funny. You know, yeah. <laughs> he happens to be come from this sort of far left political background and he just mocks that <laughs> incessantly but he he loves it as well but he's just funny and you know when I first saw Alexi Sale this was after the having seen uh, Death on the Toilet about a year later there was a, uh, a movie a, a Secret Policeman's Ball movie or something came out and I remember sitting in the cinema and Alexi Sale coming on and I just was uh, there were about eight people in the cinema I was reviewing it for my local newspaper at this point and I was I just remember almost in physical pain clutching my side this was just it just blew everything else away really and that's really I think that was I think Alex, without Alexi Sale none of us you me <laughs> you know, uh, Chris doing the sound none of us would would be doing what we're doing really no, yeah, I think that's true, you know, but I think it's great to get a voice and, uh, you know, and a perspective from someone who was who was there and saw all this and was taking part in all of this as well. So, you know, and, and has and has survived and come out the other end because not everyone survived. Not everyone <laughs> stayed sane. <laughs> and I, think, uh, I think as far as I can tell, you've say you seem fairly healthy and sane uh, and seem to have got through whatever excesses might have happened in the 1980s. But yeah, of course, it's, you know, as a comedy fan and especially a fan of that, that time, it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating to, for me to, to, to have this little window into, into the world and to, to even think of that. I mean, how exciting to be, to, you know, to befriend Rick Mail and how exciting to see Rick Mail's early performances, uh, you know, which uh, which presumably aren't really recorded anywhere, even though there's a little bits of, st- of stand up in from uh, from the from those early days. But yeah, that it that, you know the book does give a proper feel, and you know, as someone who's obviously been to Edinburgh a lot, um, it it does ring as very authentic. It seems very fair as well, which I think like a lot of a lot of. Uh, comedians you know you do talk about the university people up there and I think a lot of comedians would have been tempted to maybe stick it more to the Oxbridge uh, set than you do you know there's a there's a character who's who's writing merely about all her friends at Oxford <laughs> but, uh, and Cambridge and the shows they're doing but there is a sort of as much as if there's a bit of Mickey taking of some of the shows maybe there's a there's a sort of shared um, vision I suppose between everyone everyone's sort of there to try out stuff and yeah, you know, I think I think what really what really worked for me was how seriously everyone takes it. So Barry 
in one of the Edinburghs has to, uh, well, A is doing other people's shows and then and pisses off his, the people he's originally doing shows with, which is very true to life, uh, and has to leave Edinburgh because of a family emergency and people are pissed off with him for because it's, it's the professionalism of the Edinburgh Bridge. And that's exactly my first memories of my first Edinburgh are all these, you know, crises we had because if someone hadn't turned up or... You know, we we have to take this seriously. This could be our break. You know, and it and it it was, it it's so funny to see that <laughs> written out and realize how how mildly pathetic it is, but also, <laughs> but also you know, admirable as well. Yeah, I mean, I I trying not to be too kind of uh, super critical of uh, of myself and the people that I was around. I I, I was very much involved with the uh, the Bristol Reunions company and. Um, there was this uh, extraordinarily awful politics that went on uh, yeah. between the, the the year that I did it, 1978, and then 1979, which is the year that I, I was up and, and met uh, Rick. But it was um, the, the, the just um, what what I what I feel from what you were just saying there, which I think is true that we, it, it is a little bit pathetic. But uh, the other hand as well. There is a possible, you know, there is a possibility of great success to come from it. But yeah. when there's twenty of you and you're all sharing a room, one room in a crypt somewhere, and and it's, it goes on for four weeks, I mean, I mean, I, I think this is what kind of did for me in the once I'd uh, in, in the sort of eleven years running that I went to Edinburgh and did, did a new show every year for eleven years, and and it was the kind of just the that whole emotional roller coaster where you know sure. you, you, if you imagine like a, a year of your life emotionally and you'll have like a couple of weeks where you feel oh i feel quite good now and then you'll have like a couple of weeks of oh, yeah a bit of a plateau and then maybe a few days of oh i'm a bit down and then you know you go through this cycle you kind of do that in edinburgh like it's like a year's emotions uh, crunched together in like three and a half weeks so you'll have a kind of hour of feeling wow i feel absolutely fantastic and then you'll plummet <laughs> i don't know i'm sure there's i'm sure this will be familiar it's to a, you very well. much so well you know the whole thing you know and the, it is the whole it brought back so many memories you know my first year was we actually went and rehearsed in edinburgh so i imagine that so we were there in july so but it was literally all living in a masonic lodge sleeping on the floor of a masonic lodge with little <laughs> tables to delineate where you slept uh, you know, and there was no bath and one toilet in the whole place for like probably forty people. I don't know how many people it was. It was insane. But yeah, absolutely. What year, just, what year was that? Uh, Eighty-seven was the first year I, I went up. So that, that right, was students. Okay. So the eighty-seven, eighty-eight, I went up as a student. Um, yeah. So yeah, sort of near nine, eight, eight or nine years after after you went up. Or nine or ten, mm. uh, and uh, yeah, it was you know, but it, but equally all those th- that, like the little mini almost romances, and yeah, th- I think there's mm. sort of the weird bit still being a kid, really, you know, and being in a dressing room and girls are, were taking their tops off and getting changed, and you're just sort of thinking, <laughs> oh my god, what's happening? <laughs> I don't, I don't know where to look. Should I look or I don't know where to look? Yeah, all those kind yeah. of weird things where you weren't, re- you were still a child. But you know, made these you know made these amazing friends, made these amazing alliances with people. Had a had a gang, you know. I think it, that was the that was the thing that the the college experience gave you. It was which I think when you look at comedy, when you look at successful groups, and even people who've gone on to be solo as a, as a result, there's a, often there's a little clump of people who've sort of gravitated together. It happened at sort of. Um, Nish Kumar and everyone, I can't remember, they were in Durham, I think, weren't they? That was that's sort of one of the more recent ones where just coincidentally there was a lot of, you know, people who've gone on to be pretty successful comedians at Durham at the same time. And obviously I I was at Oxford with Stuart and Al and Al Murray and Armando Yanucci and all sorts of people. And, you know, Um, uh, not forgetting Mike Cosgrave, of course. I I could not forget Mike Cosgrave. If I could just mention um, when, when my... When my stand-up career was uh, plummeting into the depths of uh, despair and anonymity, but I was uh, rescued briefly by a friend of ours, Jim Tabaret, who I'd always worked with a lot and loved doing stuff with over the years. And he came up with us this idea. Uh, he'd been to Israel on holiday and he'd seen how all the kind of religious Jews dressed. And he thought, wow, they look like uh, ZZ Top. And <laughs> he came back to England and said, let's, let's form a, a Jewish heavy metal band. So, um, so we did, and it was uh, we, we called ourselves uh, Guns and Moses, 
and um, uh, uh, um, Jim was friendly with Al then, who was doing occasional gigs uh, uh, as a sort of uh, doing kind of weird noises of uh, car boots opening and things like that. He was that that was his sort of uh, thing. So we used to rehearse. Uh, at Al's place, which was also your place, I think was that. I, right? I lived and... there. I lived there for a couple of months, actually. Yeah, right. there was Stu was there, Al, a few other people. Yeah, yeah. Mike. I think Mike. Uh, Mike, Mike, Mike Cosgrave, who none of you will have heard of, but I, I was told on very good authority that in the uh, that, that in Oxford in the uh, early eight, mid eighties, uh, Lee Herring and Cosgrave was uh, <laughs> was the very well known act, and they, that's and and. And people would say, you know, and I'll tell you who, you know, who's going to be the really big star, Cosgrave. <laughs> and he was, I mean, he was, I haven't seen him for a while. Mike, Mike was our lead guitarist. He's a musician yeah. uh, and a brilliant musician, but very also good. very, very funny guy. And yeah. uh, so that, that was, that was the word on the street, apparently. <laughs> in Oxford. I'm, not, was... I'm not sure. Exa- I don't know. I think Mike may have exaggerated. <laughs> One of the first acts we did was a triple act. We were in a sketch group together. So there were other people. Right. We, we did as we did a triple act called uh, Knife, Knife Fork and Peterson. So Knife and I was like Bobby Ball. <laughs> Stu was like Sid Little. And then Mike played a guy who sat in the corner drinking beer. So we were like, we weren't. We're trying to distinguish ourselves from the usual usual double act by adding this extra element of a guy who just sat there. And he did that very well. So, yeah, he was yeah, yeah he's my best friend. He was my best man, Mike Cosgrave. And I think I believe I was his best man. At, uh, right. We've both only had one wedding. So that's uh, that's very impressive for us both. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so he's, uh, he's a terrific guy. Uh, he's lives down but- in Devon now. But then the reason I mentioned that, I think, as well, is because and what what it reminded me of, and this was this would be like the sort of mid nineties, so this was about sort of ten years after the young ones. But we used to go to that house in uh, Tooting and rehearse, and it really, to me, was it. This was the young ones' house, and it was just, and it, it really felt <laughs> like that. There was, you know, the sort of. Um, all these comedians living to get, living together, and they've all got their little rooms on one side and off to one side. And then this sort of kitchen was a kind of uh, there was like a sort of four mica table and a couple of chairs, and <laughs> that was sort of about it, really. And, and and big boxes of piles of takeaways everywhere. But but um, <laughs> you know, from that house has come you know the most phenomenal amount of productivity i would say whether it's you know uh your eight thousand podcasts or you know al's twenty thousand live gigs and stews you know hundreds of gigs and shows and stuff it is it is a quite a phenomenal uh it, amount of productivity it is but then one. i think i think that's what's in you know when you've got a gang you know we sort of all we did all okay at university and i think i was almost the, you know i knew that i'd, I'd read fringe the flying circus and uh, you know, I was very interested in the young ones, but I kind of knew the path that we had, sort of had to take by weekending. And Stu was very, also very into stand up, which I wasn't to begin with. And, you know, so he knew the path for that. And so, we, you know, we came with a sort of thing, well, let's get, all give this a go. And me and Stu came and then the next year came up and uh, we'd sort of started the path. So they knew what to do. But, yeah, I think having a little group of people, some of whom have gone on to, you know, like Mike's, a, a, as you say, a fantastic musician now. Uh, and that's that's what he does most of the time. Uh, and yeah. Simon Oakes, I think he lived in that house equally, oh, very yes, good musician Simon. and composer. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, just having that support of going, we're going to try and do something, you know, but also we're talking about the 80s and we're talking about the 70s and the, ni- and the early 90s when you could move to London and, and have £50 a week for rent if you oh. if you shared oh, a big yes. house and, and <laughs> you know, make it work, which is, you know, things have changed so much just in terms of... Um, you know, the number of people trying to be comedians as well is now insane. So like I think you, you said in your email that you knew back in the day in the 80s and 90s, we all knew each other. You know, you'd all seen each other die. Uh, and, you know, there was a camaraderie there. And there still is a camaraderie. But, you know, if you go do a gig now in a club, you'll meet three comedians you've never heard of who, who yeah, are still doing I- pretty well. <laughs> I mean, that was a really interesting thing that happened last year. I went to uh, Edinburgh the summer before uh, last, um, so that would be uh, 2022. And it was the first time for about three years that it was actually back to normal. And I was up there recording podcasts and doing a couple of things. And I had a couple of hours to kill, and I just thought, okay, I'm going to 
do the obvious thing that I'll do here, which is I'll just walk to the Pleasance. And it was like Saturday afternoon, the sun was shining. I'll I'll go to the Pleasance courtyard and see some see someone I know and just have a go off somewhere and do something. And it was the first time I'd ever been there, and I, I did not know a soul. There was not a single person there that I knew, not even Christopher Richardson, Mr. Pleasance himself with his Panama hat, who's still, he must be in his late 80s now, but he still yeah. kind of wanders around imperiously like the King of Edinburgh, which he sort of is in a way, I suppose, yeah. uh, King of the Fringe. But um, I, I kind of, uh, I, I thought, this is, this, this is a, fundamentally different thing i mean obviously it's years since i've been so why on earth, why on earth should i know anybody i mean it's ridiculous to think that but but even so i mean i knew you know a good 30 40 50 people who were who were who were up there at that point and they obviously now they don't go to the pleasance courtyard you know no. <laughs> they probably got that got their lives sorted out i guess when you go to edinburgh now you really know you know you've really kind of got your blinkers on and you you go and do your show and then you go off and get out of like, like the sportsmen who you know they're like the England cricketers they're all desperate to go <laughs> off and play golf you know that's yes. the sort of thing about it yeah. well, I can't wait to get on the golf course it's too I mean we're too old unfortunately Dave I think to that you know that's yeah. the, when I, my, my last editor and I don't you know the, it's the same and for reading this book is a little bit the same it is all the it's all the emotion that's gone into that city, so and it's still the res- residue of it. There is still there, so there's a, a, lots of happy times, but there's lots of depressed times. There's lots of lonely times. There's meeting people. Yeah. There's breaking up with people. There's you know there's lo- loves that you regret ending, and there's loves that you regret messing up, and and so it's very difficult. And yeah, you're too. You know, I you do. I did my show at lunchtime. And then I had to go and look after my kids, which is fair enough. But, you know, but then my wife was doing a show. So I wasn't even, I don't think I, I think me and my wife went out for dinner once or twice. We managed to get a, a, her mum to look after the kids. We had a dinner at six o'clock twice or something like that. And so, yeah, in our 10 days there, there was no socialising at all. But, you know, that's, I think that's also true of the youngsters. I don't think they're quite as, for me, in the eight, in the 90s, Edinburgh was just, that was my holiday. And that was, the show was almost an inconvenience and I was just looking forward to getting pissed and, you know, waking up and retching and then do my three shows and <laughs> do it all again. So it was, yeah, but that's what I think that's what this book is just so evocative of all that stuff. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Is the stuff about your about your home life in Leeds and your dad having a factory that he wants you to take over? Is that is that based in truth or is that is that something that's yeah? No, that that was very true. That that yeah. much of the uh, story where my, I, I I suppose yes, what the, the the kind of areas that I'm interested in writing about, I've always been interested in writing about on account of uh, a being Jewish and b being called Cohen and see looking like a, a comedy Jew and like my like my hero behind me Mel Brooks there sure. um yeah, that's that's the nearest I'll ever get to being to Mel Brooks is you know kind of being very very Jewish but but that that kind of sense of identity of um being being a, a white person but 
not quite feeling like I belong in in this country. And it's sort of interesting how uh, in the stand up early stand up days, um, about maybe forty or fifty of us, and I'd say kind of getting on for. 20% of those 50 or so were either Jewish or uh, lapsed Catholic. Right. And so very similar kind of background to the, to, to the Catholic, you know, you, 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 you're, you're a white person, so you don't look different, but you just, you, you feel different. And I think that's what, uh, that, that's what I kind of grew up with. And there was this very kind of rigid uh, sort of, almost a ghetto that I grew up in in Leeds. I mean, a very nice ghetto. It was lovely. But uh, my dad had this factory and they all, all the all the people, they'd all come over from Russia in the 19th century. They'd all f- fled from Cossacks trying to kill them, basically. And uh, ended up, a lot of them, a few of them ended up in these sort of running these clothing factories in Leeds. And then in the 70s, all the factories went bust, you know, because the cheap imports were coming in from uh, Taiwan and 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 uh, from uh, and and so a lot of these places they sort of fell apart really. But I was definitely, you know, kind of being told this is this is your trajectory. You will take over the family business from your dad, just as your dad had taken it over from his dad and and so on back back the previous generation. So yeah, that was all true. And that that all fell apart around the whole time of this whole, you know, kind of me finding finding out about comedy. So yeah. Yeah. Well you know, but that, there's so there's so much in just this first novel. I mean we'll talk about the second one in a second maybe. But that but, you know, because it is, you know, it is about Jewishness, it is about you know, it's about adolescence and that and that and becoming your own person. Uh, luckily for Barry, or unluckily and luckily for Barry, because the, the factory goes bust, he doesn't have to take over a factory that he doesn't want to take over, though I don't think uh, he ever would have done. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, there's, there's uh, and it's about those friendships and the way friendships change uh, between school and, and university and growing up and the way that a friend is a rival as much as uh, someone you sort of like hang around with. So it's, you know, it is... Um, that, you know, it's it's a very dense and rich idea. And I, I, I listened to the audio book, which we'll briefly talk about, which is um, read by Arthur Smith, which is obviously, uh, you know, what? why did you choose to get, I mean, I, I know Arthur's probably more of a, a, a name, but it, it struck a little, it was a little bit weird having a sort of Londoner reading this book about, about, someone, yeah. about, a, about a Northern Jew. But uh, what, what was the thinking? Well, I mean, this is the whole, the, the the journey one makes in uh you know and and, and the, the the you mentioned uh, at the start there that, that, that you know me as dave and everyone else knows me as dave but i kind of was was obliged by the amazon algorithms to to have a different name because i bring out lots of books non-fiction books about writing comedy um and uh, the idea that you would want to read a book about uh, finding out about how to write comedy. And then you'd say, oh, Stand Up Barry Goldman by Dave Cohen. That's obviously a book going to tell me how to write comedy. No, it's a novel. So you'd get really annoyed. Yeah. Um, so the, the Amazon algorithms basically say you've got to have another name. So, And I kind of think now, was it worth the hassle? I'm not sure it was. <laughs> so David J. Cohen is the name on the novel. And in a similar way, because this book, this first book was kind of 40 years of gestation. So it kind of uh, all my all my kind of Edinburgh feelings went into that first book, all the emotions. And and for me, the period that I was doing Edinburgh, the kind of the personification of the Edinburgh Fringe was Arthur. And um, it just felt like he had the voice that was uh, that. I just heard so much of it in his voice and I sure. just thought I should get him to do it. The, the, the next book is uh, actually narrated by me. So because okay. <laughs> the next book is called Barry Goldman, The Wilderness Years. Right. Massively, massively original title, I realise, but uh, it sort of felt like the only title it could have really. And so it's when Barry... Uh, doesn't join uh, Chris and the gang, and he goes off instead and becomes a, a, a journalist uh, in uh, in Rotherham. Uh, and so, while you know, when the whole the whole alternative comedy thing is is happening, he uh, he's writing 
golden wedding reports and, and <laughs> council meetings and this this fantastic new TV show stuff. So he's very much outsider. I mean, it, it is the, sh- the 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 book is again defined by uh, Edinburgh and the comedy fringe, and it ends at the Edinburgh fringe. But it would have felt even weirder, I think, to have had. Uh, Arthur doing doing that at that point. So, uh, so yeah. But it, it 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 did. Yeah, it's just one of those decisions that you make. And he, I think he reads it brilliantly. He really. does. He's yeah. very, you know. Of course, he's very good. And yeah. it's great to have him. It's sort of just. It's sort yeah. of weird when it's a when it's a stand up. You start to think, well, you know, Dave could do this. Dave could read this book. But uh, you know, I can under, I under, I understand why not. And yeah, it's, he's he's uh, you know, it's in typical. Uh, lugubrious sort of almost offhand style Arthur's got which I yeah. really love but he does really it feels some of it like it you know I think some people read the books first and make notes I don't think Arthur did that I think some of it feels like this is the first time Arthur's read this bit but, <laughs> but he still reads it very well so uh yeah but yes that's good yeah you know and I think what's what's interesting because you get so many books that are written from the perspective of a super a successful comedian. So, you know, we will have had Rick Mayles, a fictionalised account of his life, and you'll have Peter Kay's, uh, you know, uh, self-aggrandising, never failed, <laughs> I've never failed at anything account of his own life. And you don't, because of the nature of how books are published and who publishes them, you don't get many books about what is most of us, and certainly most people at the Edinburgh Fringe, is someone who you know, and, and I'm not saying go, goes on to not be successful. You're a very successful person within the comedy field, but you're not, you know, you and I are not Peter Kay. You and I are not, <laughs> are not uh, you know, are not Rick Mayle. I think we'll agree with yeah. that. And we never, we were never destined to be those people. So it's, but it's, it's, it's kind of more interesting to see it from that level of, of, you know, of, uh, of, kind of not you know of, of the insecurity of it which i think those famous people also have and and not knowing whether it's going to happen not knowing if you're good enough maybe not being good you know i think for barry goldman i, I don't know if barry goldman is is not quite as good as you it feels a bit like he's <laughs> I mean, it feels a bit like he's is a bit more clueless than you are maybe i don't know well, in those early years, but yes, I mean you'll you'll see when the uh, with the second book that um, I mean th- things things do develop there. Um, but yeah. yeah, it is and uh, it is interesting. And in fact, the memoir that I did write, um, which I've now kind of taken away because I've taken a lot of the stories from that. But that that yeah. was that was called uh, how to be averagely successful at comedy, yes. which yeah. I think kind of sums up <laughs> our generation. I mean, I think you know, obviously, you, you're you're you are, you know, Mr. Podcast, and uh, you know, I think, I, I think, don't uh, you? You're, you're, you have successfully carried on a career for you know thirty odd years in in yeah. in, in this uh, world, and you've kind of made it your own. And I think that's a real, you know, it's a fantastic achievement. I mean, that's what's 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 very interesting. I think as well is how some people, you know, some people come and go and come and go again, and some people actually. You know, out of seemingly out of nowhere, suddenly, you know, they're kind of phenomenally successful. And I think, I mean, it's interesting that some somebody like Stuart, for instance, who I did uh, the first time I saw Stuart was in uh, 1989, right? And I think he, I think he was still a student, or he might yes. have just finished. And uh, I was at the uh, Marco's Leisure Centre in uh, just a sort of the the other side of the. Uh, the, the wrong side of town at that point um, where the sort of exhibition centre place is now so it's, it's it's cool now but at the time it was a it was a bit of a back and beyond and uh, and I remember Stuart was basic uh, and, and I remember seeing this guy thinking oh I like this guy I was just like I was doing a my show and I sort of took a moment off and there was just a bunch of comedians trying doing five ten minutes in, yeah. in this room and uh and what I've subsequently known is that you know, he he hasn't changed. He was exactly the same, and it was just—I mean, he was a little, maybe a little bit more sneery, but uh, you know, it was that—you know—that it, it was just that kind of uh, style. And it, it, he sort of didn't never really changed. I think from from day one. I mean, you obviously know him a lot better than I do, but it, it sort of feels like. And and ha- Harry Hill was another. Was that I remember when the the, the first 
I used to do a lot of gig, uh, the, the point at which my career was going like that. Harry's was sort of going up like that. And but there was this kind of uh, moment on the axis where we were both dying really horribly <laughs> on stage. And I had no idea why, because I've been doing it for 10 years and then it was just all going wrong and I couldn't work out what he was starting out. And again, it was just Harry Hill as we know him, you know, yeah. the guy you see on telly, there's no, no difference, but the audience had no idea what to make of it, this guy. And so, but he was so confident that what he was doing, that he just, he just did it. And, you know, if the audience got it that night, it was fantastic. And if they didn't, and he died horribly, it was like, oh, well, you know, they'll, they'll catch up soon enough. <laughs> and they did. And yeah. So it's a sort of, it's quite fascinating how you can see that when a, you know, a person arriving fully formed, as it were, and yeah, that that that, that, that can happen that way as well. And I, I'd like to kind of explore. That. I'm going to do one more book after this, but I'm going to go up to about 1987, I think. Right. So this book goes up. Next book, The Wilderness Years, goes up to 1984, right. um, and then the next book so will be 87. But it's also what's been quite interesting writing the second book was that it's a lot of it is about the politics of that time because that kind of played in very much with what alternative comedy was and so it's also a, it is again it's a history of alternative comedy but there's the, the sort of two defining moments for alternative comedy as much as uh, for the for, for britain were uh, the falklands war in 1982 and the miners' strike uh, in 1984. And that's kind of where alternative comedy, as we know it, and where, where comedy, the, the sort of political aspect of it, became what people thought of as the cliche of, oh, alternative comedy, it's about, you know, it's, it's a bunch of left-wing, uh, you know, kind of do-gooders, do wishy-washy, uh, left-wing do-gooders, or hating Margaret Thatcher, which... Was true, I think, uh, but also, but there was more to it than that. It was always more complicated than that. Well, I, mean, I like I the way. I, sorry, I like the way in this book that you know the as as I think you know Barry's a decent guy, but he's also a guy, a young guy, and he is conf, you know you get the confliction between wanting to be a feminist and also wanting to lose your virginity or trying to understand women. And, you know, and I think there was, even within, you know, it, it, they, we're looking at the 80s and it's not like alternative comedy certainly improved things. But then if you look at the 90s, it sort of took a big step backwards in a lot, and certainly in, in terms of the feminism. But I'm not sure the feminism was ever really a huge part of the 80s. Anyway, you know, I think they talked a good game, but I don't think they, you know, there were a few more female comedians came in, but not many. So, like, it's taken what? until really now, until we've got to a situation where there's anything like approaching, uh, you know, women are safe and women are equal and women have a voice in in the community. So, you know, I, I like the fact that it's not you're not you're not uh, venerating the 1980s and 1970s as if it was these guys were perfect and there were certainly some rogues and some chances uh, in amongst all of that anyway as the as the cliche is that they're just doing it to sleep with girls anyway pretending to be a feminist which i think was true of some guys but are equally not true of other guys so yeah well i think a lot of it comes down to what you know what what is a comedian uh, and, and and so this this plays very much into the the, the the second book, and, and it's kind of alluded to in the first book, um, which is on on the one hand, we all like to think of ourselves as speak truth to power. Yeah, you know, we're giving it to the man. We're we're telling it like it is, and you know, we admit it that we all want to be that. We all think we're breaking taboos. We all think that. But then that's part one. And the other part is like me, like me. I need you to like me. I need you to love me. That sort of needy. Uh, dysfunctional requirement, whatever it was that made us want to be stand-up comedians. When, and it was obviously something that was kind of wrong with, with us. Otherwise, you know, that, that's how you get... So that that's how one becomes a stand-up comedian, is one has sort of got some terrible lacking thing in the, when they were kind of growing up. And so, but I think what's happened from that period and it, and it was you know very much instructed by the kind of the left-wing theater group is uh the, the left-wing theater ethos we are not sexist and we are not racist 
And I think that was true for a large time in the early 80s. That we, we are, uh, and, and we are not racist, pretty well continued. And if you do want to be a racist comedian, and you can still be a racist comedian, there is now a circuit for you. And, yeah. you know, those people are, I wouldn't say they're happy because they, they think they're, they think they should be getting a wider audience. But, you know, it's kind of, there isn't enough of an audience for people to see that. But there was this idea that we were, um, we were also tr- trying to be not sexist. And it, and it wasn't that we're sitting there going, hey, right on, feminism. It was just, we're not doing mother-in-law jokes. And that's what it became. And so, but then it also was about, you know, people's and relationship, you know, men talk about relationships. And, and, and as you say, you know, a lot of it is a sort of self-deprecation. But, you know, in the hands of a less skilled person, it can sound quite misogynistic. And, 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 and that did carry on. You're right. There was, it was... It was lip service, but it was a there was a real genuine attempt to say no, we don't do sexism and we don't do racism. And um, there was this uh, there was a guy who was very successful at the time, the early eighties. He was nominated for Perrier quite a few times. A guy called Roy Hutchins, um, who and he was we called him the the professor. He was the real sort of expert on stand up, and he was a very funny guy. He did great shows and things, but he told us about this guy we'd not none of us, none of us had ever heard of uh called Roy Chubby Brown and he said this guy doesn't do tv but he plays these theatres he gets loads of people and he organized a stand up comedian's trip to go and see Roy Chubby Brown and he said the thing about Roy Chubby Brown is he's he's from that world he's not uh, you know he's working class northern comedian but he's he he doesn't do any racist material at all. So we thought, oh, that's interesting. So it was, sort of, it was like a kind of school trip, about 10 of us. We all went to the Peacock Theatre to go and see uh, Roy Chubby Brown and discovered very, very quickly why he didn't do racist material. There was just not room. <laughs> There's not an, an iota of room for racism because it was just wall-to-wall misogyny. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say... I, I wouldn't say sexism, you know, it, it, it was way beyond that. And the audience was almost all men. And it was just like, and, you know, some of the jokes were extremely inventive in their misogynism, whatever. <laughs> but we sort of sat there, kind of, you know, looking jaw drop and, and afterwards saying, you know, yeah, of course he's not racist, but. Yeah, and, and, and I think Roy's attitude was, well, yeah, no, no, he's not racist. He's just, I said, yeah, but, you know, a little bit sexist, wouldn't you say? And, you know, and uh, nowadays, though, and I think the only reason he wasn't racist was because Bernard Manning was a big star at that point. And, yeah. and not, again, not on, not racist on TV, but, um, you know, he was sort of racist. Uh, you know, he, he did, he was the racist comedian. He was the yes. top racist comedian. Right, Bernard's the top racist man. I'll be the, I'll, I'll, you, you keep the, 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 the racist gags, Bernard. I'll do the, I'll do the misogyny. Uh, and then when Bernard Manning died, apparently now Roy Chubby Brown is uh, racist as well as uh, yeah, sexist. Yeah. So, you know, it all worked out happily for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's still, still just about going. I think he's occasionally not, occasionally a theatre bans him. But I mean, no, that it's interesting that you know. I think you, you've got. A very interesting span of years of co- of comedy under your under your belt. It's an interesting time to come in. You know, we both of us remember, even if we weren't involved with 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 that, you know, the seventies comedy that we saw on the comedians and stuff. And that was my first. Uh, you know, I I didn't really like stand up for a long time because I kind of associated with a with the comedians, but also we're just doing gags. Um, and I think like when I came to the stand up circuit, it was it wasn't like the comedians and it was there wasn't racism but it was a lot of laddie lads doing one-liners uh and you know and and I didn't feel yeah. I kind of fitted in with that but it but it's sort of it what an interesting period to have lived through and how much yeah. things have swung one way and the other and uh, you know things have got better and things have got worse and it's yeah. uh, I think yeah. the big change I don't know if you'd agree with me on this but um the big change was in the 90s when the TV started getting interested so one TV money, and then following on from that, to uh, cocaine. 
And um, I was, I, I think the one good thing for me was that getting, uh, I, I quit in about 1994. That was the last time I did stand up. Uh, just at the time that the whole kind of cocaine culture was kind of taking over. And I think yeah. that's, uh, and I was, I, I started writing a lot for TV at that time. So like I, I witnessed that culture one step removed yes. I think but I could see what it was doing to the circuit and it did seem to make it you know and uh, I mean I don't I, I don't know if you, you know this but I I'm uh, accidentally responsible for the the phrase comedy is the new rock and roll yeah I think um, I did know tell us about that <laughs> which was uh, um it was basically uh, and again this is another thing that was kind of interesting in the early 80s late 80s we came up with this idea there was a few of us Mark Thomas uh, Jim Tavare, Hattie Hayridge, um, Jim Miller and uh, Ivor Dembina and myself. We did the uh, thing called New Material Nights. We started this thing where you can come up and you can try new stuff. And um, at this point, I was asked, there was a new gig starting up at the, uh, the Three Tons in uh, Hammersmith, which to me was the legendary, the Nashville in Hammersmith, where all the punk bands played. Nice. And I thought, wow. I'm going to get to be on the stage where all these bands like the Clash and the Jam and the Stranglers and the Pistols, they all played on this stage and I'm going to play on this stage. And I, and then I, I came up with this really bad joke about how I would do my gags, which was like, you know, this next gag's from my last album. A man walked into a pub and heard the audience cheers. You know. And it didn't work, but the, the, the opening, the setup. <laughs> The setup line was, well, I've got this gig in uh, punk, and so com- comedy is going to be the new rock and roll now. And so, <laughs> and then I did the joke. And then there was a journalist in the, the, the show when I did that, the one time I did the joke. And he just wrote a thing, a piece about this new about new material nights. And he said, you know, they say that comedy is the new rock and roll. <laughs> da, 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 da. And that just kind of, <laughs> it took off from there. And um, that, that was a weird, um, very, very weird, weird how that's, um, Happen, but I think the reason I mentioned that was because this whole, the new material nights. These they, they were kind of that that was still kind of the old from where we came from. It was still we didn't really know what we were doing, yeah. and we started to get. You know, we were lucky. We were we we were able to develop our comedy under the radar. You know, nobody knew much about alternative comedy, so we we were kind of average. So that, but we had like two years of just performing three or four nights a week. And inevitably, you get better at it, really. But we were always, everyone was always kind of pushing boundaries then. And I think that definitely went in the 90s. When yeah, they, I think uh, it was, you know, know it TV was. money came yeah, I mean, I think, you know, even we didn't, you know, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, it wasn't like, let's do this job and we'll become millionaires. I think like at the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, we might get on TV and that might, you know, that it might be like the young ones, that would be good. But I wasn't thinking about about money. Uh, but I think now, you know, there is so much money in it. it feel, you look at Michael McIntyre or, or any, I mean, you know. Look at Stuart Lee, who says he's selling 165,000 tickets a tour. That's a million pounds right there. So, you know, these are people who are making, making big, big money, you know, do it, doing this job. But so I think that it, a different, it then attracts a different kind of person as well. But, yeah, certainly, I think, yeah. you know, the, uh, the, the various big agencies like uh, Avalon and Off the Curb coming in uh, in the 90s, that they certainly skewed the dynamic a bit. But I sort of feel like after that past... You know the clubs, the, the more kind of esoteric and weird clubs opened up. I think, I, I think in a way, it might actually have helped stand up because you know it, more kind of clubs with the spirit of the eighties. I think opened in the noughties, and you know you could find I could find a club where I could go and do weird routines that lasted forty minutes or were about a subject that no one else would talk about, whilst other people wow. were doing you know while and, and where women were equally represented and 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 hopefully minorities were represented uh and uh you know it, it things did sort of improve because i think as a reaction to to that sort of you know very much the sarcastic man on his own <laughs> being quite vicious it was it was an environment that kind of you know that included you know and i wouldn't say just say women i would say myself you know for myself i didn't feel i fitted into that into that that landscape at all which is partly why I kind of was happy to 
you know, the, the, the double act stuff kind of worked quite well for a few years because then I was able to yeah. sort of avoid it. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it is fascinating to see those changes and try and work out various, you know, ups and downs. But it is it is just this amorphous mass of stuff happening and and some people emerge from it as victorious and some people emerge from it famous and some people, you know, like you say, I think I'd I'd be more interested in carrying on working until I die, which is what, again, and I, hopefully you will do. I don't want you to die, Dave, but if, I hopefully you'll carry on working until that happens. And, you know, that's yeah, I hope that's I don't die team. as much as I... <laughs> I, I was just going to say, I hope I don't die as much as I did in that last year of. <laughs> but then we, I know we, I mean, we're so used to dying that the real death won't be won't be a massive problem. Yeah. I look, I mean, I could talk to your day, but I can't talk to your day because I've got to talk to someone else <laughs> quite soon. So we're going to have to we're going to have to wrap it up. But uh, so the books are the first one is uh, Stand Up Barry Goldman, which is available or in as audio book, Kindle, and book hardback, softback. Uh, wherever you get yeah. your books, I'm sure. And the, and what's the, the Will, Barry Goldman, The Wilderness Years, number two, is coming out. Yeah, uh, that's come, that should be out. Uh, yeah, that, that should be out round about now. And, okay, uh, And that's, um, yeah, that, and uh, yeah, there, there's um, Barry Goldman, The Wilderness Years, which um, I decided the, the title today, so. Okay, good. <laughs> I, hope, I hope I keep it, so. <laughs> well, <laughs> Otherwise, whatever. it could be very I mean, confusing. I would... I would start with I would start with stand up Barry Goldman because I think you know a it's great it's really well worth your time if you're at all interested in comedy but it also works as a as a very entertaining novel but equally I I assume you know you'll get to know the characters and you'll want to read the first one before you read the second one and then the third one will be coming out at some point in the future but it's you know it's well and also this is self published isn't it Dave we should quickly mention uh, that so that which is again. The self-publishing is the new rock and roll and podcasts are the new <laughs> rock and roll. It's all a bit, it's yeah. all got the spirit of punk that I think that appealed to both you and me when we got into doing this job, I suppose. Yeah, it is astonishing this, uh, I've, I've found kind of getting to know the whole uh, self-publishing world. It's um, and, and it is developing day by day really it's kind of different each time and it does it very much reminds me a of the the the, the punk era when uh, um, and we had a record label in uh, bristol where i was a student and you know everybody made their own records and the, there were so many record shops there were enough independent record shops that you made your records and then you had this one guy john peel on the radio who would play your record and so you would get hundreds of people would buy want to buy your record all around the country and so this whole kind of world developed and completely took the uh, independent uh, uh, took the main companies uh, by surprise and then alternative comedy was a slightly lower key version of that but there we all were working in pubs just getting good and getting better at it and then you know tv discovered it and that's how so many people from my era, people like, you know, sort of Harry Enfield and Paul Merton, Julian Clary and Joe Brand and people, they all they all came out of that. They'd all been working hundreds and hundreds of gigs, little room above pub gigs. So, uh, and now self-publishing, it feels like the punk record thing that, you know, the kind of the, the main publishing houses sort of don't really like to, they sort of pretend it's not really there and they kind of carry on as if it isn't really there. But I, I, I think it's more and more people are, you know, doing very well out of self-publishing. Yeah, well, it's terrific. Well, you know, congratulations on the, on the novel. Uh, it's fantastic. Well, the you. novels, I can't talk about the second one. Maybe it's shit, the second one. I'm not going to say, I'm going to say, I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure it isn't. And, you know, yeah. what, a fascinating thing. What, what a fascinating thing and, and how amazing to have been, you know, just there as as all that so all that stuff was happening, and so yeah. and to, to be a kind of is what what a great thing that we have you to document it and and write about yeah. it as well from from an interesting vantage point. I have to say, but love to see you again, yeah. Dave. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thank you to Chris Evans, not that one, for all of his hard work putting this together as well. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Do come and see me on tour. RichardHerring.com slash gigs is the easiest way to find out where I'm going. And GoFasterStripe.com. You can buy books and downloads. And just tell your friends about the podcast. If you can't make it to the tour show, if you don't want to buy any products, then every time you listen to an advert, you're helping us make more podcasts with a very, very tiny micro payment. So thank you very much for that. I love you all. It's lovely to meet you on tour, by the way. Hello to everyone who's said hello so far. I do come and say hello after the show. If you if enjoyed it, if you want to see me, that'd be nice. You can get a selfie. I don't care. I'm a selfie whore. All right, see you soon. <laughs>